0: Have you seen me dice back? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files Podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming alive from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Bolton, UK, I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff, to my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files, which I'm diligently packing into boxes as uh, Dirk Towers is on the move in a few months, I'm finding unexpected things in unexpected corners, including the stats for characters we played back in the day, Nistal the Spider, Dirtrum the Desperate, and the Weasel. To my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes, for this episode, she has appeared in her original manifestation, her first assignment as the Lamb's Navy Rum Girl. This episode is all about origins, and if you've been following this podcast, you'll know that the first episode was all about the first RPG we played, RuneQuest. And for this episode, we'll be returning to the game and doing a little bit more. It's been a while, but we've had another iTunes review from a listener, Jack Cornelius. This is what he said. A fantastic podcast. If you're a certain age or have a nostalgic bent with a hankering for tabletop RPGs, then this is the podcast for you. Intelligent, reverent, irreverent and humorous, Dirk and Judge Blythe present a personal overview of some of the very best RPGs. Give it a listen and you won't regret it. Oh, thanks for that Mr Cornelius. It's the reviews and emails that fill up the energy tank of all podcasts. So do spread the word and write to us at dirtthedice at com or send a comment via Twitter at the Grognard file, or on Google+, Plus, like this comment following the first episode. I listened to the two podcasts on RuneQuest and loved them. If you ever want to interview someone about the old days, let me know. Rick Mainz. Rick Mainz, RPG collector, the author of Mainz Index to Glorantha, the definitive list of published RuneQuest material. Rick Mainz, the publisher of the Gloranthan Classic series and the Mammoth Guide to Glorantha through Moon Design Publications. Rick Mainz, who became the only president in the USA that really matters, the president of Chaosium. He joins us to open the box on his earliest experiences of playing RPGs, and to tell the story of how he went from collecting KRCM output to actually running the company in 2015. One of the biggest projects currently on the new KRCM's work slate is the development of RuneQuest. They're taking it back to the point where KRCM last left off and building the new RuneQuest on the classic second edition with innovations and developments to organically fuse the rule system with the setting of Glorantha. This means that RuneQuest 6, that was developed by the design mechanism under license, has been rebranded and re-released as Mithras. Our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, will join me to review it. Also in this episode, at Daily Dwarf, our good friend from Twitter, will be looking at debt at my favourite department of White Dwarf back in the day, Rune Rites. So, without any further ado, get in the Hobnobs, and Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we go back in time and talk about our very first encounters with role-playing games. Once again, I'm reaching out beyond the den to distant shores, Ann Arbor, Michigan, the new home of New Chaosium, the spiritual home of RuneQuest, and the home of our very special guest, President Rick Mainz. Hello, Rick.
1: Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you.
0: I'm. Uh, I'm right in saying that um, RuneQuest had its spiritual origins in Ann Arbor.
1: RuneQuest, uh, in many ways, did because it debuted at the Origins Game Fair in 1978, right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on the University of Michigan campus. And Origins, for those of you that aren't aware of it, is one of the largest role-playing games conventions in North America, especially back in the 1970s. It and Gen Con were the two must-attend conventions.
0: And uh, you live in Ann Arbor now, but have you always lived uh, in that area?
1: Well, I I grew up in Michigan, and originally in the wonderfully named Kalamazoo, Michigan. always loved the sound of that town, and yes, it is a real town. The home of checker cabs, Gibson guitars, Kalamazoo stoves, and uh, my family. And uh, after growing up there, I went to the University of Michigan for university, and lived a number of years in Ann Arbor after that.
0: So, it... it and just uh describe to us uh Rick how you got into the hobby what that that very first uh first game that first experience of uh encountering role playing games
1: it was in the 1970s which a lot of people call kind of the golden age of role playing games and i was over at a neighbor's house and he was talking about how he had tried to break open a large dragon's egg in one of his games, (laughs) and he rolled a 19 instead of a 20, so he only cracked it instead of breaking the super hard magical shell. And I started asking questions about it, and he showed me a copy of the Holmes basic uh, Dungeons & Dragons game that he had. This was about in 77, I think. I remember I was in middle school at the time. But uh, in the end, I went back to my parents and said, hey, you know, I, my parents had this wonderful philosophy of they were always happy to buy my sister and I books. Didn't matter what the subject was so much, but as long as it was a book, they were almost happy, to, you know, always happy to get it for us. And so I said, well, I found a book I'd love to get, and it was the basic D&D home set, actually, the box set, but it was still mainly books. Then I started just reading it and wanted to start playing it but had a hard time finding a lot of people who wanted to play in the first couple of months.
0: So how did you get get about uh, getting the group together? How did that happen?
1: It was at school. I had a buddy who was playing Tunnels and Trolls, of all games. <laughs> and he was describing various things and the most evocative thing about Tunnels and Trolls that I'll always remember is the take that you fiend spell. <laughs> And so we actually at lunchtime played about fifteen minutes of Tunnels and Trolls, and it was okay. I enjoyed it. It was kind of very, very different. than anything I'd played before. And then I decided, well, you know, have you guys, you know, seen this D and D game? Of course, because I didn't really know what other people knew about role playing games at the time. And they said, oh yeah, we've tried that as well, and we, we played different things. And that's where I fell into a small group of guys who started playing Dungeons and Dragons with me. In particular, that was around the time I not only got the Dungeons and Dragons guide, but also we started going through the you know the Giant series of modules.
0: And uh, and from there, did you continue playing uh, through school to uh, university?
1: All the way through, uh, pretty much. I, I also dabbled in a number of war games as well, like Starfleet battles and some of the early SPI uh, smaller games, not the big monster games. But oh yeah, no, I. I Started when I was about 11 or 12 years old and all the way through graduating university, although a little bit less over time when I got to university because there's a lot of other distractions there. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, no, I, that's, uh, that's really when I started also collecting games as well as at university, picking up things that I found in university bookshops and all those because Ann Arbor has a wonderful, amazing, detailed uh, book culture when it comes to lots of used bookshops that are all within a short amount of walking distance, including they always had a used role-playing game section. That's where I was very jealous of when one of my college roommates came back to our dorm room and he had in his hands a stack of strategic review magazines that he picked up for two bucks each. I don't. Know, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but that's the one of the original pre Dragon publications by TSR.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, how would you on on your uh, gaming uh, RPG uh, passport, Rick? What? How would you describe yourself? Are you a
1: collector or a gamer? I I, I definitely started out one hundred percent gamer you know, all through the 70s, 80s, and up through the 90s, I was largely a gamer. By the 1990s, I was probably 20% collector, 80% gamer. But as I switched to, you know, a full-time job after university, that's when I radically switched to being a collector. But, you know, the pendulum has kind of swung back to where now I'm about probably 25, 30% gamer and seventy percent collector, and it's heading more toward gaming, as I can find the time. Because
0: it, it's a it's a different impulse, I think. Um, I, I, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was uh, with a couple of uh, avid Glorantha collectors, and they were waving your um, index on a, on a phone to each other and comparing notes <laughs> on how many <laughs> copies of Worms footnotes they had each. So, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> what got you into uh, collecting?
1: I, uh, I, I'm one of these people who, if I know there are five books in a series, I want to have all five books in the series. You know, when I started reading Michael Moorcock's, uh, you know, Stormbringer novels, you know, I started with number one and then got the next one and the next one and the next one and those, you know, delightful little paperback books. And I, I've always been the kind of person for good, bad, or indifferent. If there are seven in the series, I want to have all seven. And I like seeing them all next to each other on the shelf after I've read them. And so that's kind of what got me started. And it's always just rounding out. You know, Chaosium was very good at numbering their publications and didn't jump around a lot in Chaosium numbers. So it's like, well, if I've got one through five of this series or that series, I want the other ones as well. Because I enjoyed their products so much in particular. And really, Chaosium was the first thing I really started collecting.
0: Was that uh, RuneQuest products? Or,
1: uh, very like, much so. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was a gamer, I was I was almost never the, you know, game master or dungeon master, I was always the player. And as a player, there were while there's always a temptation to get a number of things that you can read, you know, most of them are scenarios and things like that. And so if you want to play them, you don't want to read them ahead of time, of course. That's not exactly the way I like the game. And so I, I didn't buy a lot of things as they came out. You know, I didn't, I didn't buy the giant series of modules by D&D and, until many, many years after we played through it. And the, and the same thing for a lot of Chaosium product. I didn't buy much of it because, you know, the Game Master had the big box set of RuneQuest. He had the big box set of Stormbringer. had the big box set of Call of Cthulhu, all as they came out. And we started playing, you know, whatever homebrew stuff he either came up with or a few of the scenarios and so there wasn't a lot for me to just naturally buy when it was all right there at the gaming table for me or it was scenarios I wanted to play through and not know anything about ahead of time
0: and uh, you have a a UK uh, connection don't you when when did you move to the UK
1: well not too long after I started working in the automotive industry uh, we started working with a lot of the European branch of uh, uh, the company. And so I started traveling over to the United Kingdom for the occasional work project. And I really enjoyed my time in the UK. I made a connection early on, after my, you know, before my first trip with a few Brits, at a RoomQuest convention in Baltimore, back in 1994. And they always said, oh, well, if you ever come over to the UK, please look us up. We're in the London area. We'd be happy to meet up for a drink or a meal or you know, such. On my first trip over, I contacted them and started making friends right away, introducing me to a wide range of people. And so I kept going back or finding reasons to go back for more trips until uh, a few months later, I Went to my boss in his office and said, I'd really like to work on an overseas project for a few years in the UK, if that's possible. And he agreed.
0: It, during that period, because this is a period of my uh, deep freeze, I was out of, uh, out of the hobby f- uh, for this period. And right in the 90s, that was a, a great time for Glorantha and uh, the fan activity around that. Can you just explain how that, how that worked in, in the UK?
1: Well, I was just to back up a teeny bit. Yeah, I you know when I started you know my you know quote unquote professional career in the automotive industry, largely as a technical writer and corporate trainer, I used some of my you know spare income as I had it to buy gaps in my role playing collection, and because RuneQuest was one of my major interests. I started buying the Avalon Hill supplements that I'd never played through because I, I RQ3 was pretty much when I had started slowing down, doing a lot of role playing because it came out when I was in college in the 80s. But I picked up a bunch of the Avalon Hill books, especially the RuneQuest Renaissance books, you know, written by you know people like Michael O'Brien and such. And one of the things, because I got the River of Cradles right in front of me here, I kind of hold it up to the microphone. Mm. In, in the River of Cradles supplement for RuneQuest 3, right at the table of contents, which you kind of naturally turn to and when you first open a book, at least I do, it has a wonderful ad for Tales of the Reaching Moon, the RuneQuest magazine, published by you know, David Hall in the UK with distribution in the United States by David Gabois and in Australia by Michael O'Brien. And so I contacted David Gabois and picked up all of the back issues of Tales of the Reaching Moon magazine that he had available. And that started getting me into a wonderful, amazing, diverse range of, I guess you could say, Gloranthine enthusiasts all over the world who were, you know, this was fairly early days of the internet, or at least email and, you know, very simple, uh, you know, group messaging, where they had this wonderful uh, community that was just Talking about all things Room Quest and Glorantha, and I was able to join that just by reading that advert in River of Cradles.
0: And and so how did they? How did that go to the uh, conventions? Because the thing that, that I find fascinating about the conventions uh, in, in this period, uh, I understand that it was a lot around the world building of Glorantha and uh, developing stories, um, really beyond the games, and uh, you know just building that mythology together oh,
1: oh yeah very much so i david gabois along with sending me the back issues of tales of the reaching moon uh, he also let me know about david chang's RuneQuest convention that was coming up in baltimore maryland and i just basically decided a few days ahead of time because i didn't find out about it months and months ahead of time to go to Baltimore, since it's a fairly short flight in the United States, you know, just about an hour, and stay at a nearby hotel and went to the convention just kind of as a walk-in, by the badge on the day, and see what's there. Because I, I really didn't know anybody in person at that time. I'd only just started dipping my, you know, big toe into the waters of the online Glorantham community. And that's when I met, for the first time, Greg Stafford, Who uh, I had him sign because I brought a number of copies of my collection with me, and I was hoping to get him to sign them. And he very patiently sat down, and we talked about the different things that I was having him sign. You know, signing things like my copy of Pavis my copy of Big Rubble, copy of Cults of Prax, uh, and so along with meeting Greg. I got to meet a number of the people from the UK, including Nick Brook, who I listened to in the storytelling contest, tell a wonderful, uh, glomeranthenized version of a a kid's fairy tale. And I met Michael O'Brien and a number of others as well, uh, Dan Barker, and the list just goes on and on from the UK gaming scene. They had all come over because they ran a similar convention like that over in the UK known as Convulsion.
0: And that eventually uh, uh, transferred into continued continuum, didn't it, later in, in the decade?
1: Yes. Uh, you know, Convulsion ran every other year, starting in 92, then 94, and 96, the first year I ended up going to it. And then when David Hall and a number of the other organizers decided to retire and move on to other things, you know, they'd already done the convention many, many times, that's when the name uh, in 2004 became Con- uh, convulsion was C four, so that was It was two thousand and six, is when it switched names over to Continuum, and it's been running every other year since.
0: And how did um, Moon Design Publications uh, emerge from that?
1: Well, you know, I moved to the UK in nineteen ninety five and started spending you know time every week with the Reaching Moon MegaCorp, as it's known. That was you know David Hall's. Uh, publishing operation, doing Tales of the Reaching Moon magazine, doing some other uh, individual small supplements. They did Tarsh War, Rough Guide to Bold Home, Rough Guide to Glamour, and a few other publications like that. And I just mentioned to David early on that, hey, you know, one of the things I do as my day job is I'm a technical writer and I do documentation and basic layout, nothing super fancy. And so he was saying, Well, as it just so happens, we need somebody to help with the layout of Tales of the Reaching Moon. And so, starting with issue number 14, all the way through the last issue, April, uh, issue 20, I was the layout guy. I, I learned a lot of great stuff from Steve Thomas. And then, talking with the guys, you know, RuneQuest was basically out of print by then. Certainly, a lot of the classic supplements were out of print. And so, with Moon Design, I decided with another uh, graphic designer and layout guy, Colin Phillips. Well, why don't we ask Greg, who he always came over for the Convulsion Convention and some of the other European conventions like uh, Tentacles down in Germany and the wonderful castle on the Rhine, uh, built up a you know a, a decent friendship with Greg. I said, well, you know, since Avalon Hill is basically done publishing RuneQuest and all that, and you know, Greg had just left Chaosium. Uh, a year or so before Moon Design started up, uh, we, after a lot of back and forth with emails, say, hey, we'd love to get the some of the classic chloranthine material back into print. And so would you be willing to let us do chloranthine classics uh, and with a brand new company called Moon Design Publications, started by Colin Phillips and I in 1999? And he said yes. And so the... Uh, uh, so.
0: so. Just talk, talk through how you, uh, how you got the uh, gig of, uh, of, of president.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, Moon Design started in 1999, and it allowed me to build up a, a longstanding working relationship with Greg Stafford as a licensee. You know, he started with, you know, the four main volumes of Glorantham Classics, you know, that's over a thousand pages of all the early Rune Quest supplements, you know, Cults of Prax, Cults of Terror, Pavus, Big Rebel, Griffin Mountain, all those things. Uh, he got used to seeing that we could, you know, deliver a quality product. We, we paid our royalties to him on time. We were, you know, trying to expand what we were doing in the industry. And so he let us become the publisher of his HeroQuest game and all the HeroQuest supplements as well because Greg was in a phase of his life in, you know, about 2005, 2006 where he went down to Mexico for a few years and was teaching English as a second language uh, in Oaxaca down in Mexico and so he, he pretty much was taking a big break from gaming entirely other than I know he did some gaming while he was down there but in terms of being a publisher, developer things like that he was taking a big break and so he he just kept saying you can get more involved in more things and so we became you know moon design became the licensed publisher of all things hero quest and so you know then you know in about 2013 or so i'm trying to remember the exact timing uh, you know greg had been back and it, that's when we did the very large Kickstarter. It was actually 2012. We did the large Kickstarter for the Guide to Glorantha. You know that monster, two volume, 800 pages of uh, hardcover, uh, just hardcore Glorantha goodness. And so he saw us being very commercially successful with the you know uh, Guide to Glorantha Kickstarter. And so when Chaosium was having all of its problems in 2015. Uh you know, it, it was sad to watch what was happening with uh, Call of Cthulhu and Horan and the Artist Press Kickstarters. And you know, in twenty fifteen I I wanted to help Greg. So I volunteered.
0: Just so just so we we uh, can understand what, what it's like being the president of a, a games company. Um what is your average day? What, what 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 do you have to deal with on a on a day to day basis?
1: Well, it, 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 varies quite a bit. Uh, you know, at, at, at first it was, uh, getting a lot of things organized in the company and now it's more leveled out to where the days are a little bit more predictable, but being a small company, uh, you know, sometimes I'm paying bills, which isn't very glamorous, but of course, you know, it has to be done. Uh, I still get to do some things with layout, although it's more coordinating the work of others, uh, you know, this morning I was working on our uh, soon-to-be-launched new board game or card game, I should say, Con of Cons, and was doing some of the uh, tweaks on the print-and-play version of that, getting ready for the Kickstarter of it. Uh, sometimes I'm working with printers and going through all the specs for you know what it's going to cost to uh, get a book printed and get how long it's going to take to get delivered. I do an awful lot of production-related setup.
0: You know, it all depends. And when you're faced with a big project, so the new RuneQuest that's on the horizon, what's the biggest challenge in a project like that? Which element of it um, causes the most headaches?
1: Well, RuneQuest is something that all of us in the company truly, dearly love. It's really one of the games that really brought us all but, you know neil jeff mob and i it's the one that really brought us all together uh that, that's how i that's how i met all three of those guys was at uh, you know i met michael o'brien in baltimore at rq one i met neil and jeff at one of the other rq out west um and so that's how we all got our start and it's one of our main games that we still play um uh, but with RuneQuest, it's it's a combination of trying to develop new and interesting parts of the Glorantha universe, and you know f- you know fine tuning the rules uh, to fit in Glorantha, and it's also trying to stay true to its roots because it has a very long, rich history dating back to 1975 when White Bear and Red Moon came out.
0: Well, I guess the uh, that's the exciting part, isn't it, of the project, the uh, creation of the game? The, fine, the thing I find fascinating um and the, the great endeavor uh that that you guys have, have have addressed is all the logistical effort required to deliver a project like that just getting the shipping start sorted and the kickstarter and that, those those kind of things what, what what's what's what, what's that like
1: Well, I I certainly do an awful lot of my job. And, you know, it's not one of the things I said in my my typical day, but it's definitely a a big part of my typical day is staying on top of, you know, finally wrapping up the Horror on the Orient Express Kickstarter and shipping out the very last backer items for that. uh, Coordinating the final items for the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition Kickstarter and keeping the RuneQuest Classics Kickstarter going, you know, those all fall under my watch, um, especially RuneQuest Classic. And so, you know, a lot of the less glamorous side of any Kickstarter is, you know, shipping a lot of product, dealing with missing items, damaged items. You know, when you've got two or three thousand backers receiving a number of items each, even if there's a one percent or half percent error rate. You're dealing with a lot of, you know, sending it to the wrong address. Uh, oh, we forgot to include, a, you know, one of the handouts, or we this this you know slip case got crushed by the postman when he left it on the porch, and then of course it rained on it, so it's wet as well. So we get lovely photos, you know, a little bit heartbreaking, of you know catastrophically damaged product. Is like, you know, did a did a gorilla throw this around inside of his cage for an hour <laughs> before it got delivered? And uh, but you know we 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 take customer service super super seriously, and it's one of the things at Kaz and we've really tried to turn around as quickly as possible as being not only really responsive to these kind of things, but trying to head them off so things are packaged better, you know, less damage is likely, although you can't prevent it entirely. Uh, but yeah, the, the kind of the non-glamorous shipping and stocking of stuff, uh, even, you know, setting up the two other warehouses, one in the UK and one in Australia, just so people can get their stuff hopefully quicker and with less postage costs, because, you know, postage costs have just been insanely going up in cost over the last few years. So yeah, we deal with a lot of that as well, and it's, it's certainly part of my day job, every day.
0: So, so when you're not doing the uh, day job, uh, uh, Rick, I, I know that one of your uh, your pastimes is a is a Eagle Scout leader. Uh, so, 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 so what kind of things do you get up to uh, with that?
1: Well, I, I yeah, I've been part of the Boy Scouts since the 1970s when I was a Cub Scout and then a Boy Scout, and I, I did earn my Eagle Scout. In 1983 I'm certainly very proud of that it gave me a lot of skills that have carried on throughout all of my life and of course one of the big things in scouting is paint back what you got out of it and so I've been an adult leader in scouting uh, starting when my boys uh, became of scout age so I started out as a cub scout leader and became a cub master and then when my older son, Alex, switched over to Boy Scouts, I was not only involved with the Cub Pack with my younger son, Max, but I was in the Boy Scout troop with my older son, Alex. And after a couple of years of doing that, they gave me the extremely <laughs> uh, scary but also very honored uh, offer to be Scoutmaster of my local troop here in Ann Arbor. And so Aye. I've been Scoutmaster of the troop for the last few years.
0: And do you have a and d merit badge? Did you reward <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's funny how when people hear I'm in Boy Scouts and also a bit of a collector, they say, well, do you know about the D&D merit badge? And I'm like, tell me about it, please. (laughs) Uh, You know, always good to hear their take on it. But yeah, I I have been gifted a number of times with the UK uh, Achievement Award, basically their equivalent of a merit badge, uh, for D&D. Because unbeknownst to me at the time, back in the, I believe it's the late 80s, but I I can't remember the exact time, uh, Games Workshop over in the UK was the sponsor for collections merit badge and they had the D and D logo on an actual British merit badge. And so I managed to pick one up when I was over there because that's the kind of collector I am. And then I know when Greg Stafford was clearing out some things from his closet, he's like, Rick, I got something you got to see, you got to have. And he (laughs) sent me his D and D merit badge that he got from games workshop itself, which is really cool. So he used to go over there and visit when, you know, um, when, uh, you know, they had the active license between Chaosium and Games Workshop, and and I've had a few other friends say, "Oh, I found a D and D badge and I knew just the guy to get it." To.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. And how has uh, being being a, a scout informed your uh, playing? Because I, I imagine when you're on the plains of Balazar, that it comes in handy. Uh, knowing some competitive Well
1: I, I I I'm a little bit old school when it comes to Boy Scouts as well. I, I made a, a pledge to the scouts that I would only like, for example, start a fire with flint and steel, not try <laughs> to use matches ever. And so I remember earlier on, uh, years ago in some in in some games where somebody said, Well I'm gonna start a fire and I'm like, It's way too windy. And they're like, "What do you mean? It's way too windy, or it's like, you know, everything's soaking wet. What do and just like, what are you on about?" And I'm like, "You don't know how tough it is to make a fire under these conditions." The same thing with uh, shelters and things like that, because I took wilderness survival merit badge, and so not that I was over the top with it, but every now and then I would just kind of take a step back and say, "You don't really know what you're doing with all this kind of stuff."
0: <laughs> well, I'm guessing that your uh, tracking is ninety uh, percent.
1: Just, I'm good with I'm good with I'm good with knots. So,
0: <laughs> just to just go back again about um, clearing out um, Greg's closet because you did have the uh, chance to do that, didn't you? When uh, when you moved KSC and from California to Ann Arbor, what what kind of things were unearthed while you were
1: doing that move? Well, I you know let's let's flash back to you know 2015. You know, I when I when I first showed up at the chaos offices for the very first time ever, never visited any time previously, even though I'd been in San Francisco, it was always very short visits, like you know, when I went to RuneQuest Con San Francisco, the second running of RuneQuest Con, I, I didn't have any extra time on that weekend to go to the Chaos offices, much to my regret. So, you know, the the first time I walked into the building was in, you know, July of twenty fifteen. And, you know, you know, chaos is a very important factor in Chaosium. <laughs> and, you know, there, w- there was no systematic storing of anything. It was just kind of all here, there, and everywhere, sprinkled throughout their large warehouse. And it was kind of like going into a my library with, you know, no organization system at all. And you never know what you were going to find on the next shelf or in the next box or in the back room. Uh, and so it was it was quite a interesting historical nostalgia based frustrating trip through all <laughs> things chaosium has ever published but they did manage to keep basically copies of just about absolutely everything they ever published and so when we were there we just started you know a little bit every day you know take a break from working on accounts payable or going through the mail or shipping out kickstarter packages or things like that and just i'm going to take a break and i'm going to sift and sort through a couple of boxes back in the warehouse or tackle this shelf and you know next to the break room or things like that and you absolutely never knew what you were going to find
0: so do, do you think that now we're at a point where all of uh, Greg's writings over the years have been collated, uh, is there nothing else to
1: find? Oh, well, you know, find, I know, like, at the Casium office, uh, one of the things that we haven't gone through in any kind of detail is we have a lot of Greg's, uh, you know, company correspondence between himself And all kinds of people throughout the 70s and 80s and up through about 96 when he was with the company. They all got put into boxes from a file cabinet, I guess. And this is one of the things that Chaosium, one of the reasons it was so chaotic uh, in some respects, was that they had moved office a number of times throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They hadn't been in the same place. And this was probably like the fifth or sixth chaosium office they had so you know packing all that stuff up shoving it into a bunch of boxes moving it across town you know be it they went you know from oakland over to albany berkeley and hayward you know they had a number of offices so uh, you know it was it was always you know because it had been shuffled around and repackaged so many times it's all over the place but you know th- there's a there's a lot left to sift and sort through, uh, huh. in terms of we're talking a number of bankers' boxes of uh, Greg-related chaosium correspondence, a lot of uh, other correspondence, you know, be it from you know with Lynn Willis or other people in the company related to all the things they were developing that we just haven't had time to scan in and go through. But that is one of our goals: is that you know because a lot of this paper is. 20, 30, sometimes forty years old. Since you know, calcium's been around since seventy-five. Uh, we do want to get as much of that scanned in, so we don't have to worry about what happened to the one paper copy.
0: Uh, that's that's uh, something exciting to look forward to. Well, mm-hmm. let's um, let's uh, close this section, and we're going to come back in part two to have a look at uh, your collection. We're going to roll on the Games Master screen and pick, Ooh, out, f- uh, pick out five uh, from your collection. So until next time, uh, Rick, see you next time. Cheers. Okay. White Dwarf! Rune writes Ruminations. Back in the day, you knew a role-playing game had really made it when it got its own regular department in the pages of White Dwarf magazine. For RuneQuest, that moment came in Issue 30, with the arrival of RuneWrites. devoted to readers' ideas for RuneQuest. That initial column encouraged reader contributions in all aspects of RuneQuest. Rules, new creatures, scenario ideas, background features were all welcome. Well, all that is except items directly related to Glorantha, New skills and magical treasures? Yes, please. Detailed treatises on the dragonutes of Dragon Pass? No, thanks. Those could go straight to Greg Stafford at KSEM. While this distinction was primarily made for copyright reasons, I think it really benefited the department. RuneQuest 2nd Edition was, and still is, inextricably linked with Glorantha. That's always struck me as a something of a double-edged sword, The world of Glorantha is undoubtedly inspirational. The creatures and races of the world, and not forgetting the wonderful, wonderful map, are all rich sources of exciting adventures. And the progression of characters through their advancement in the social structure of the cult, rather than the more abstract idea of just levelling up, was very satisfying. But, as I've said on the grog pod before... I think Glorantha can also be intimidating, particularly for new players. I must admit, even now, I still find the wealth of material on Glorantha daunting, although I'm comfortable with the fact that these days I could simply make it up if I needed to, although I haven't games mastered in a long, long time, so all the Gloranthum purists out there can rest easy. I should also note, regarding setting that there was also a suggestion that, in that first column, that any scenario submitted to rights could be fitted into Games Workshop's slice of the quest world pie. Shame that never fulfilled its potential. All this is a roundabout way of saying that, by effectively taking the setting out of the equation, rights could concentrate on the other key strength of the game, its streamlined, intuitive rules. Over the next few years, until the final column in Issue 73, articles on many varied subjects appeared in rune rights. We had many new skills, rules for trading and economics, everything you ever wanted to know about horses, some weird and wonderful treasures, and even rules for elf ball, suspiciously similar to cricket, but with the added severed troll head. The column started under the editorship of Oliver Dickinson former Classics lecturer, Damien Runyon-Officiendo and Olanthe Runelord, before later transferring, in issue 52, to the discoverer of the Daleks, fabled scribe and part-time demon summoner, Dave Morris. I've since read on the the internet that many of the readers' submissions to Rune Rites were actually Dave Morris' pseudonyms. I don't know whether that's true or not. Dave Morris, if you're listening... Please let us know. Reading all the RuneWrites columns together, several common themes emerge, and I'd like to look at three in a little bit more detail. Combat, Creatures and Magic. Combat. Ah yes, Combat. The crunchy heart of the RuneQuest rule system, with hit locations, parries and strike ranks. RuneQuest upped the ante in terms of introducing a level of realism to fantasy RPG combat. Least compared to the other game, and of course, as part of that realism, it could also be deadly. Incapacitation and lost limbs were always a possibility, even the highly trained and experienced Rune Lord was still vulnerable to a lucky trollkin with a slingshot. But apparently, RuneQuest combat still wasn't realistic or deadly enough for White Dwarf readership as numerous articles featured in Rune rights that extended the combat rules to add extra authenticity. The first Rune rights column of issue 30 started the ball rolling with some fairly straightforward rules additions for unarmed combat from Ed Varley. By the end of the column, that lucky Trolkin, not content on being a threat to Rune Lords everywhere, had progressed to murdering little old ladies by throwing them to the ground. Best just to avoid troking completely, I think. Now, as I say, the rules were straightforward, but they seemed to stir up some controversy with the RuneQuest Cosmicente. Some thought it was an accurate enough simulation of fantasy fisticuffs. Others thought the training costs were too low. Still others thought enhancements were needed to the damage rules. Sheesh, there's no pleasing some people. So, in... Issue 41, Unarmed Combat, was revisited. Oliver Dickinson summarised these further enhancements, including a nice distinction made by future editor Dave Morris between martial arts, for which training was possible, and brawling, gorging, throttling, butting, etc., which can only be improved through experience. I suspect Dave Morris's character spent a few too many nights drinking at the Tin Inn. In the article, though, Oliver Dickinson did recognise that a commitment to realism could have a detrimental effect on the speed of play, thoughtfully sparing readers from yet another table. In a later column, during his time as editor, Dave Morris also highlighted that a balance needed to be struck to ensure that the simulationist approach didn't cripple the game flow. Two columns on combat. Particularly stick in my mind. The first was that from issue 46, titled Swashbutler. In contrast to the prevailing mood of making RuneQuest combat as realistic as possible, this dealt on how to pull bold and brilliant moves in melee, like swinging on a rope to enter the fray, or plucking a missile fired at you right out of the air. On a critical, you could throw it right back. I like these ideas as they were based on existing skills and could easily add a bit of pizzazz to combat. With the release of Feng Shui RPG still decades away, these rules provided the best way yet to swing in on a chandelier and launch yourself onto your opponent's back to commence the fight. A wild look in your eye and a scimitar gripped between your teeth was optional. The other column I remember from issue 43, Arms Talk. It's a bit of a grab bag of ideas around damage absorption in RuneQuest Combat, how armour and weapons themselves can get damaged, that sort of thing. Not that outstanding in and of itself, but what makes it memorable is Oliver Dickinson bringing some of his historical and classical knowledge to bear. We've all heard the Iliad, But the Icelandic drup sona saga? Well, no, no, well. Chapter 10 contains a great description on how to disable your opponent's leg, even with a blunt sword. He also comments on the veracity of all-metal shields and how early iron weapons were only marginally better than bronze ones. Who says that RPGs aren't educational? Historically accurate weapons facts from an academic expert, you just can't get more realistic than that. Creatures. As I said earlier, I see the monsters in RuneQuest as a real strength of the game. The backgrounds and mythologies woven around them really bring them to life and make them so much more than just a monster of the week dungeon fodder. As the good Judge Blythe has said before, it's telling that Chaosium didn't need to produce endless compendiums of new monsters to keep RuneQuest players interested. But, as we've said in earlier grog pods, RPG players just can't resist creating new monsters, and the contributions to RuneWrights were no different. So, did the various creatures that were published in the column add anything to the game, particularly since they couldn't be tied into Gloranthian folklore. Overall, I think a high standard was maintained. The various authors realised that the monster is more than just a statistics block and provided a fable to present to the players. These monsters of mystery and excitement, beasts born of chaos, creatures with complex social structures, monsters drawn from ancient mythology. Most of these entries had a spark that could be used to trigger an adventure. My undoubted favourite is Dave Morris's Crypt Stalker, from issue 39. A solitary horror, this undead remnant of an ancient race, with an unreasoning instinct to butcher, and the ability to pass through wood and stone, it singles out its target, which it pursues relentlessly. It will not stop, ever, until they are destroyed whereupon the stalker crumbles into dust. If a player is targeted by a crypt stalker, then they're in for a tough time. Requests for help from the local temple are likely to be met with the advice that the player get their affairs in order, and then take the honourable way out. It's a great hook for a monster, one that a gamesmaster could build a whole campaign around. As Oliver Dickinson said, this is a high-quality monster magic. Even more so than combat, magic in RuneQuest had a very distinctive feel than that in D&D. There was a lot to like about the magic system, the shamanistic influences, the mechanics of spell casting through the use of power points, and the fact that any character could use magic. But at the same time, the system as presented in the rulebook felt a little undercooked. The spells with their rather bland prosaic names didn't excite in the same way that D&D spells did, and dare I say it, TNT and t spells as well. Never fear, though, Rune Wrights came to the rescue again, with several articles that added some colour and sparkle into RuneQuest magic. In issue 38, Dave Morris gave characters a fast track to Rune magic, with the Lords of the Spirit world. Tired of having to follow every restriction and obligation to your cult in order to gain power from your deity? Well, go and seek out the Spirit Lords instead. Being somewhere between gods and men, think Jings on demons. The Spirit Lords don't care about devotional rituals, but they're willing to trade rune magic for sacrifices of power. Result? In just one short page, Dave Morris gave a neat justification for magic in a non gloranthan campaign, and some nice adventure hooks for PCs who wish to deal with these mysterious entities. Of course, a few issues later, Dave Morris famously went on to expand his demonic ideas in the classic article series, Dealing with Demons. But let's save that for another grog pod. Some other magical highlights. I liked Loam Wolves by Barry Atkins in issue 67, an alternative to battle magic for barbarian tribes. I think by this point the no Gloranthan content rule had been relaxed somewhat. Barbarians could gain spell powers by painting runes on their bodies using enchanted loam. This is a simple but evocative idea and provides some real colour to a campaign that features barbarian tribes. But my favourite addition to the RuneQuest magic rules, and I think my favourite RuneRights column of all, is Of Oak, Ash and Mistletoe by Robert Dale from issue 53, with a follow-up struck by lightning in issue 62. This is a list of rune magic spells drawn from Celtic druidic myth. But what a list! Taking inspiration from ancient Celtic legends like the Mabigonian, they bring a heady mix of poetic lyricism and dark primal danger to the game. And in contrast to the stark, functional spell names from the main rules, these new spells have truly memorable names. Jack in the Green, the Howl of Ossar, the Chariot of Morrigan, the Cauldron of Anwen. Wonderful stuff that evokes the wild hunt, the shrouded silent forests of ancient Britain, and the deeds of mythic heroes that echo through the mists of time. How could you not want to include them in your campaign? They're just perfect for RuneQuest. So, there you go. Room rights, thirty-nine columns, loads of new rules and spells, fifteen new monsters, two editors, and one murderous trollkin. Oh. Judge Blythe, rules. Welcome to the room of roleplaying rambling, where I'm joined by my learned friend Judge Blythe, fingering his gavel with insane glee. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Well, it's been a while, isn't it, since you cast your penetrating eyes on the minutiae of mechanics. You're not rules rusty, are you?
2: No, 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 I don't think think so. so. We'll find out.
0: I think the last time we did it was for uh, Tunnels and Trolls, Mm. which is some time ago, isn't it? So, under the hammer in this episode is Mithras, the new name for what was RuneQuest 6. So this is a generic system. Uh, It's not tied to any specific setting. Uh, but there are supporting volumes for yeah. uh, Fantasy Earth, such as Mythic Britain, Mythic Rome. Um, there's also uh, a fantasy setting called uh, Corantia. Car- Corantia. That doesn't sound like Corantia. Corantia. Caran- doesn't sound like Gloranthra, if you say it quick. Does no. it? And they have um, an OSR uh, volume as well, which is uh, Classic Fantasy, uh, which is that old school dungeon crawling. Mm-hmm. So um, they're all like kind of supplementary uh, material to yes. this. Mammoth rulebook. I mean, it's a it big, is a big rule. Book. It's a big it rulebook. It's a it
2: big is. rule book. I think. I think that's one of the the first things you could say about it. Really, that it it is a it's quite daunting. <laughs> yeah. I think. I think when we started playing it, we, we all we all commented on the idea that if you were new to role playing, if if you'd never played a role playing game before. <laughs> it wouldn't be the place to start would it no it no. really wouldn't it was quite intimidating on
0: the uh, design mechanism website, you can actually download um, the essentials mm. version, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. called yeah, uh, a bit more manageable yeah it? it's called the Mithras imperative, and you can get that for free just to get a flavor mm. of the rules yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's a good starting point if you've not done it before and if you were to go back into a time machine back to summer of 2015
2: well, I wouldn't do that I'd go back to dinosaurs or gladiators and the Roman arenas wouldn't I? Yeah. anyway
0: if you went back into uh, back into time to the summer yeah. of 2015 yes we were incredibly enthusiastic about these rules yes weren't we, we were
2: yeah we really liked them didn't we? yeah I, I think I think I still I still like them yeah I still like mm-hmm. them yeah
0: but it has to be it has to be said doesn't it that since then, so we did a campaign, or well, the start of a campaign, mm. uh, which used the Sartar Companion for Hero Quest in Glorantha using the RuneQuest Six rules. So, but since then, we've not really played it, and why is that? Do you think?
2: Well, I think I think the reason for that, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of the game. I think it's more a ref- reflection of us because we we've always had this theory, haven't we? That we came to role playing travelled through role-playing from a simulationist point of view. So yeah. our our favourite game back in the day was always RuneQuest, second edition RuneQuest. And we played D&D and we played Travel and we've talked about them. But we always liked RuneQuest because we felt it simulated what it would be like to have a fight. It had hit locations, yeah. it, it it was quite dangerous, uh, armour absorbed damage, you know, you parried with a shield, it didn't just add to your armour class and all that sort of stuff. So. We came at it from a simulationist simulationist and
0: tactical as well, wasn't mm-hmm. it? So this idea yeah. that you know the way to defeat an opponent was by using tactics.
2: Yes, and yeah. RuneQuest Two offers you all that, and and RuneQuest Six, Mithras. I'll keep calling it RuneQuest. In Mithras, it's a very very similar. I mean, I think what Mithras does very very well is it pushes the simulationist element of role playing to the to the absolute limit of playability. So it is playable, but it, if it went one step further, it wouldn't be. Yeah. If it went one step further, you'd be in aftermath territory, wouldn't you? Where you'd be thinking, oh, what? Well, eight locations for every finger? ears? <laughs> after all the D100 for every oh, it was a nine damage to your elbow.
0: <laughs> so you're saying it's a hair's breadth away from a GU simulation, submarine sorcery. Yeah, yeah. It. yeah.
2: It's a hair's breadth away from that. But what they do very well is they, they don't go that far. So it's a simulation game. And I think what's changed with us is the games we are playing now are less simulation. Yes. So we've played Knights, N- Black Agents, for example, is role playing as if you're in a movie, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. not saying. What's all. Obviously, they're all rooted in a kind of reality.
0: Yeah.
2: But, but they're saying this, this is a movie, this is a story. Numenera is the same. It's saying this is a story rather than a simulation of what it would be like to fight yeah. somebody with a sword and a shield and so I think we've changed and I think that's why we've not perhaps played it as much yeah. because we've we've gone down a different slightly different road so you know, we're, role playing it.
0: so perhaps where we were once tactical we're more about spectacle
2: yeah yeah, yeah. i think I could say that yeah yeah
0: yeah because yeah. i think uh, the rules for Mithras do give very descriptive, cinematic type mm. events, don't they? Yeah, they, yeah. they give you more of a facility to describe um, uh, combat as it happens, because yes. uh, yeah. because of the special effects, which will will no doubt come out onto. Mm. I think I think that's true. I think we we probably have changed, but I also think because of the RuneQuest Classic or uh, second edition uh, Kickstarter that happened. Uh, at the end of two thousand and fifteen, mm. revived my interest in that game, and through two thousand and sixteen, I went back to that and uh, played the old yeah. style. Yeah. So sort I of think that
2: that has a that has a bearing on it. I think, but and as but as well, I, I suppose we're exploring we're exploring new games, aren't we? Yeah, we're playing we're playing a little to some extent. We're playing a little bit of catch up, aren't we? With certain games that came out when we were in deep freeze. Yeah. So there, there's that as well. There's only it, sometimes it's not necessarily a reflection. And, mithras it's more the fact that we're just playing other games and there's so many game hours in a year isn't it
0: the reason we turned to mithras or the uh the sixth edition rules was you know it's got the dna Mm. of basic role playing so it's got the essential qualities but there are some key bits that go there's Mm. the stuff that we like actually so strike rank is strike rank disappears disappears Um, it appears in a different way mm. Resistance Tables so Yeah, who, Who'd yeah. fought? I mean that's a key yeah, component yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that goes uh, and there are some different innovations that come in and it's those innovations that appeal to us because mm. uh, in the next part of this episode we're going to talk about Borderlands and we played Borderlands yeah. and we found didn't we towards the end where we were against evenly matched opponents Yes. Um, it became like a grind grinding out a result you were
2: grinding out a result and just waiting for either hoping you get a critical on them that would ignore armor you get some or or they would get a critical on you and and even when you got a critical they would sort of parry that and so it it did it it, there was this kind of relentlessness to it which RuneQuest 2 yeah it does have that problem doesn't it that When you get even, and it's not so much evenly matched. It's more when you get good, good characters who are 70% plus with weapons, you know, which by the end of Borderlands your characters were, yeah, like that. Versus tough monsters who are also 70-80%. So essentially, it means almost every roll you're hitting, but then they're parrying. Yeah, they're hitting you, but you're parrying so there's that it, it does it becomes a relentless you know rolling dice endlessly endlessly rolling dice and nothing much happening you're just waiting for them to fumble or yeah. hoping you don't fumble or you are waiting for that critical role which is ultimately the downfall of you know one or the other people so, in the fight
0: so the way that combat works in Mithras is um, you have what they call a differential role yeah. so if you uh, so first thing to say and this is something I like is that they combine the attack and parry uh, skills as yeah. one skill yes. as a fighting style?
2: Yeah, and th- that's an, yeah, and that's an interesting thing. The fighting styles are interesting because it's not just a case of right. You can pick this sword and this shield and this. You, you get a s- selection of weapons. So when we played the Attack campaign, yeah. we were barbarians, all anti-barbarians, weren't we? Who yeah. had fighting style of a spear, short spear. Medium shield, broadsword, yeah. and and what's interesting about that is you think around the weapons you've got. So it wasn't a case that we decided to pick a spear and a shield. It was that's that's what these tribes use, and we yeah. we developed a tactic of throw your spear, throw your spear in first, hopefully you hit them, and then go in with the sword, and that's that in itself is interesting isn't it yeah because you've got a style of fighting rather than yeah a selection of weapons that you've just picked
0: yeah and so that's and it's just one skill that not it so one percentage yes. number yes so yeah. if you're using your spear or your yeah, sword yeah. or your yeah if you're using that in that combination yeah. that is your yeah. one so i think that's that's a good innovation and
2: that's part of the simulation thing because when you when you read a little bit about you know roman foot soldiers or yeah you know, Roman cavalry or Vikings they, that's how they operated isn't it they yeah. did, did do that, they had a, a style a, a way of operating with a, like a Roman soldier with a shield, big shield and a short sword this is what they did, and it was all like one fluid movement of sorts, it wasn't yeah. like they were crap with the shield but really good with the short sword or great with the shield but a bit crap with the short like yeah, yeah. like in Runequest 2 you can be like that, you can be uneven with yes. your shield and yeah. weapons, you know you can be great with the sword but you're useless with the bow, yeah. but in in real real life soldiers were trained to use those that combination of weapons
0: yes right? yeah so that's so that's a good innovation mm. the, other, the other thing this differential so where um, if you're successful in an attack mm. um, and a parry fails you can then choose a special yes. effect. yeah yeah and that will depend on your weapon yeah so if you've got an edge weapon you could choose to bleed an opponent so if you break through the armor and yep. make a cut. Yep. You've found a vein yep. and uh you've, yep. kind of, uh you've kind of you've kind of incapacitated mm. your opponent. So that, that that was that was that was really good. But it makes it very, very deadly,
2: doesn't it? makes it very deadly. Yeah, it does. But you're right, it adds it adds a lot of colour to the fight. It yeah. moves you away from that constant attack, parry, attack, parry, attack, parry. Oh, he's missed his parry Oh, hang on, the arm has absorbed it. Okay, we're back to attack and parry, yeah, yeah. attack and parry. Which RuneQuest mm. two can sometimes lapse into that, yeah. like you say, that relentless, sort of monotonous almost, combat, yeah. but the it, Rune Quest 6, Mithras rather, doesn't, doesn't do that, it, it, it livens everything up a little bit. Yeah, and the great. bit
0: I like the best about it, and this is one of the things that I hope uh, carries through into the design of the new RuneQuest, Quest, is uh, defensive options, because there is always that thing isn't mm. there, a, a parry, so you can do a critical parry. Uh, yeah. In uh, RuneQuest 2 and it doesn't really have any bearing, does it? It doesn't no. have has any any special effect, unlike Stormbringer, for example. Mm. Where, you, know, you can have you can have a thing. Whereas, uh, if you use these special effects, and your if if the attack is unsuccessful, and your parry is is mm. successful, it means that you have a chance of disarming an opponent yeah. Yeah. or bashing them, knocking yeah. them off uh, off the feet. Yeah
2: that kind of thing so, it's, it's, so fights, are, yeah. fights were over a lot quicker weren't they they were, they were. And, and what was interesting as well about it I think I mean, one rule I particularly liked was is it an endurance role yes. where when you get, you get hit with a weapon for example if, you, if they, you bleed you start to bleed you have to have an endurance role the idea that if your endurance skill's higher it's the idea that you're a tough warrior who's used to being hit with a sword and can stand the pain of it yeah. whereas if you're kind of a farm hand, the first time you've ever been hit by a sword it's going to hurt and you're going to feel it and you're going to think, you know, ooh that, and you yeah. fall over onto the floor. Those kind of rules are interesting that they make combat. Yeah. As I say, it pushes that simulation, doesn't it? You yeah. know, you've been hit with a sword, right, what's going to happen? You're going to start bleeding, potentially suffer from blood loss and collapse a few rounds later um, it's going to hurt. Are you going to be able to take the pain, or are you that going to make you collapse? And we did find fights were over a lot quicker. But what it also did um, is it, it, a bit like Room Quest Two. It made you think very, very tactically. So me and Eddie were the players in your yeah. in your game. Um, and what we realised very, very soon was do not split up. Yeah. Stay by each other's side, because chances are one of you might end up falling onto the floor, bunch of them on the floor you're at a real disadvantage so stay by each other's side I think one of the first fights we did we ended up on opposite sides of a, a valley didn't we Yeah. both getting clobbered and after that we thought oh, hang on a minute this is a bit stupid stick together which again is, is what you would do yes. that's what you would do so yeah. it's really really good as a system in pushing you into thinking like a real warrior would think you yeah. know, tactically strategically you know it's not like D&D where you think oh, I've got an armor class of 19 and I'm, oh, I've got 78 points doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter I'll be okay they're not going to tear me down easily no. well in RuneQuest 6 they, they can tear you down easily so you've got to think about it and that, yeah. I, that's really good that's a really good aspect of it I think
0: yeah. Yeah. so that's, uh, that's combat and you know at this point of the uh, proceedings mm. uh, your honor yes. that I ask you to choose Three rules. <laughs> Three rules. Three rules that you think are essential in Mithras. Okay.
2: Well, well, I think we've, we've covered we've covered weapon yeah. effects, special effects in weapons. I has to have an honorary mention because I yeah. think that is a really interesting innovation. But for the purpose of this, I'll, I'll set that aside. Um, I think the first rule I would pick is uh, opposed rules. Mm-hmm. which, again. Kind of resolves one of the tricky elements of second edition or earlier editions of RuneQuest. So, what Napole's role does is uh, the best examples is your your character is sneaking up to some castle, right? Yeah. And decides to hide in cover, sneak up, hiding, moving silently. And they are uh, a master of hiding, so they're like 80 90%, so they're brilliant at it, right? And the guard on the wall is some bozo who's got 20% spot hidden item or whatever so yeah. you make your role to hide, in room quest 2 you make your role to hide because you will, because you're a master of it but then if the guard makes his spot hidden role, no oh, he's spotted you so it's almost as if the only benefit to being a master of hiding in this example is the fact that you you're probably going to do it but if someone with a 20% spot hidden role makes the role, well, he sees you so, being yeah. a master counted for nothing really in the yeah. end. What opposed roles do is, in that situation, you both roll, and if you both achieve the roll, whoever rolls highest is successful. Yeah which is a bit tricky, it's hard to get your head around as a, as a basic role player, a room quest player, it's hard because your gut feeling is always the lower the roll, the better yeah. because obviously the system is based around percentages so you're roll, always rolling under, you always want a low roll to roll under the percentage. But what opposed roles do is it accommodates the fact that if you are, to go back to the example, 90% at hiding, yeah. you're so much better at it. Than the guy who's looking for you, who's only 20% at looking for people who are hidden. So if you roll an 89, you've done it. If he rolls a 15, he's done it. But the fact you rolled so much higher means you're still hidden. Yeah.
0: It is kind of intuitive. Yeah. And it does need you to uh, change your behaviour mm. because what we tended to do was um, scoop up the di- dice. Um, mm-hmm. And you know you roll it, don't you? Scoop up the dice, but yeah. you need to leave them on, you the, leave table. Him on the
2: table to, to see what you remember what you've got when yeah. the guy rolls. I don't like how you called him a bozo, though. I I'm just thinking. I'm thinking. It's your NPCs in these games, don't, <laughs> it, don't they? Bozos with Brooklyn accents. Well, he's just trying, <laughs> he's just trying to make a living for his family, is he? You yeah. don't know that. Yeah. He, he might be he might be a castle with evil cultists, and he, he could be intent on. Bringing in or wherever it is to its knees Corantia. Carantia bless uh, you
0: <laughs> one of the um one of the things that it does do with um skills as well is to um it has like degrees of making things hard doesn't it uh, yeah difficult. It you, can knock,
2: you can knock things down a bit yeah, yeah.
0: knock things down mm. um proportionally now that caused us some difficulty didn't it yeah because our maths our mental <laughs> limited. isn't that great is it <laughs> so if you're doing something that was hard and reduced by a third for mm. example so 55% but you say well it's actually a hard thing to do so exactly. rely on Eddie yeah Well, even
2: Eddie, Eddie was saying he, 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 even Eddie struggles We're not 20% trouble. off not 20% <laughs> 2 t- <laughs> t- well, mentality yeah yeah not 20% no 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 it's got to be proportionate because if you're better proportionate yeah yeah. because if you're a bit of you yeah exactly 20% is no use it's not proportionate is it no yeah it's just 20% 20 off a a person with 25% skill is is far far worse than 20% off someone with 80%
0: so I like the idea of it um, that thing of having um, skill checks that are uh, graded, whether they're hard, difficult, monumental, or, or or whatever the categories are. Yeah. Um. But in in reality, it's just hard to work out, isn't it? It just slows things yeah. down. As you yeah. say, can but, do a bit. Uh, so I'm I'm fifty two percent on yeah. it. So yeah. But but that opposed uh, rule, I think I think you're right. I think that works really well. Pause rule does work,
2: but the, but it is it is hard to get your it's hard to get your head round. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking it's hard to actually explain to somebody. It almost we struggled with it at first it was very it's very counterintuitive and it kind of uh,
0: eliminates the need for a resistance table cause yeah you, you know yeah. you kind of got that yeah. competing skills yeah okay on your gavel goes
2: down okay that one passes unopposed okay thank you very much very generous of you and uh, yeah, the judge. Aren't you? I don't know. I'm a judge you? and apparently an enemy of the people. I've <laughs> but, not forgotten that. From last okay. time.
0: Second, second, uh, second up is uh, what? What was your next one? Second one
2: uh, is look points. Look points. Look points. Um, in Mithras, your character has a set number of look points, and this allows you to spend a look point during a session. It's during a session, isn't it? Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. To get replenished at the end of the session. Ren- uh, session. They're like uh, bennies in Savage Worlds. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Fate you points. You, you're allowed kind
2: of to you're allowed to roll the dice again, um, and I think only players get get luck points, don't they? And what I like about that is, you know, the, the concept of luck. Tunnels and Trolls has luck, doesn't it? Yeah, like? yeah. But Room Quest really is one of the few games that we've encountered, and, and it translates across to Cthulhu. And, other, other basic roleplay that has power, uh, which translates into luck. Yeah. You know? And I think luck's an interesting statistic because sometimes you need to use luck when you can't. it's a game you, can't, you know, is there an axe in the room? Um, I don't know. I don't want to say yes because that seems too easy. But I don't want to say no because that seems to be spirited. Power times five, yeah. luck. So luck's in there. It's in the in the DNA of Room Quest, isn't it? Yes. Um, so luck points uh, seem. A logical extension They seem to fit nicely With the concept of RuneQuest But what's good about it Is One of the Again One of the, one of the Problems of RuneQuest And it's very much Problem in Mithras Is it, It's quite deadly Yeah and it, can, it can It's very deadly It's very yeah. deadly And sometimes It can be a little bit irritating When you've made all, all the tactical decisions As a player And you just get Two or three Really bum rolls And you're dead Yeah And it seems a bit Oh come on You know Seems a bit so look points are good because they give players just that little edge—not too much, but just a little bit of an edge—to yeah. make them slightly more survivable yeah. than uh, your average bozo NPC.
0: Yeah. So a bo- <laughs> it's a good point that so if a bozo NPC is up on his tower and he hits you with an arrow and it's a critical in Mithras they can choose two special effects. Mm. So he might choose to say, "Right, I'm going to pick the location. Yeah. Um, head." Yeah. And I'm going to uh I'm gonna chip pit a location and I'm gonna go for a bleed. Yeah. So when it penetrates it in because it goes into the neck yeah. and you're down. Yeah. So yeah. a PC then has the option to say, I'm gonna make the bozo roll again.
2: <laughs> yes. I am. <have. laughs> no look, it rolls exactly the same We've yeah. not better.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what one of the things I like about uh look rolls and this is something that over the last twelve months uh, as we've been exploring uh, other games that I've introduced to games, is this idea of the games must have been able to arbitrarily sometimes to award gifts to the yeah, player yeah. to kind of reward good role playing. Yeah, yeah, good role playing. Yeah. And the way that um, the character—we're not talked really about how the characters build up, but it does take in elements of. Um, uh, Pendragon, in the sense that you yes. can build in passions, can't yeah. you, yeah, yeah, yeah. and background yeah. into your character creation. So as a games master, if I wanted to reward you, kind of, reflecting your passion in a particular way, mm. I could reward you with a look point, to say, well done. The other thing is, at the at grog meet, we uh, played um, a Classic RuneQuest, Quest, ring Quest 2, and I gave people look points. Mm. And uh, they needed them yep. because they would have been uh, petrified by a brew <laughs> uh, with a bruised gaze in the hand. They were burning yeah. through those luck points. And
2: you, yeah, and you think back, we, we, I think back to my days as a player in RuneQuest 2 games back in the 80s when we were a lot younger. And uh, yeah, there's many a time when my characters really came a cropper because of just some bad luck. And I yeah. think with RuneQuest, is all it takes is a couple of bad rolls to yeah. be dead and that you know it's not like other games where you think you know so we've had the joke I've heard Numenera, Numenera Eddie keeps rolling ones. Yeah. he's still alive he's still alive even though he's been rolling ones. yeah in RuneQuest, Quest I think if you roll two or three bad rolls in a fight in in succession you can be dead yeah you can be dead the that's other thing great. to
0: say about Mithras as well is that the healing and the recovery is a bit more mean-spirited mm, yeah. it takes yeah. longer and um, it, that I think that's what makes it more lethal in a way yeah. that it's uh, you know like healing spells are not as powerful and that kind no, of in, thing no
2: in classic room quests, that's the thing isn't it the healing spell can sort of zip you back up to full strength even mm. though it costs you power points you can yeah. still yeah, get back up to survivable level for the next fight.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the gavel goes down, lot points uh, go in, and uh, the next one is what?
2: Well, it's a bit more controversial. Um, I think action points. Action points are controversial. They are controversial. Put you but, put it put it forward. I I, I like the action point because to, to summarize. Yeah. Um, in Mithras. You depend on dexterity and various other factors you get a number of action points, so I think an average action points is two is two two, yeah. two, which means in a fight combat you can attack you do one proactive thing which will cost you an action point. you can do one reactive thing so it, it, with two action points in a normal fight you'd be i 'll attack someone and i 'll parry their blow but if you 're quick and you 're agile or you know, you can get more than you can get more than one action point. So I think I, we, I played a character with three action points. And you could potentially have four action points. what I think it does. It, it's it's a neat way of resolving that perennial role playing problem of multiple opponents. You know, so it, it's always easy to explain a fight and deal with a fight when it's one on one, isn't it? Yeah. It always gets complicated when you've got two opponents, so in classic RuneQuest we've always struggled and fluctuated between, right, okay, I've got two people attacking me, they're both going to attack, I can attack one of them and I can parry one of them, can I parry both of them? And I think we've, over the years, we've gone from, you can parry as many times as you like, which seems slightly unrealistic, can can you do that, could you do that? Surely you're outnumbered, that's the problem, being outnumbered. But we've also gone down the other order of saying, no, you only parry once which yeah. means you get clobbered, which again you it might be realistic but it seems, seems a bit harsh. What action points do is it's quite clear that if you've got three action points for example you can attack once and if you've got two opponents against you you've got two spare action points so you can parry twice it's quite clear what you can and can't do and I think that's a, a neat, it's a neat way of doing it action points, a neat way of dealing with that problem of multiple opponents um, ideally, I'd like to do more than two things in this round. Can I? Well, if you've only got two action points, no. You know, you yeah. could use both action points to parry twice and not attack. if You've got two opponents. Yeah. So I, I do think it's it's a neat way of dealing with that problem, which which crops up in role playing all the time, and some systems don't. Sometimes, never very clear about multiple opponents. Yeah. You know? Now, this
0: is the reason why this is contentious. Mm. Is um, it the 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 rules as presented um, are uh, are tricky to get a bit confusing. confusing. We struggled struggled with struggled with it, and the application of them in our initial ones. Uh, initial games with it was incorrect wasn't yes. it because we allowed additional proactive actions so yes. in effect yeah. if you were fast if you were um it had high dexterity and high size and you had additional action points you, could, you had a sneaky uh, extra, extra attack, attack yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which isn't, with, isn't what you do with it isn't no. what, what you do no. my difficulty with it and, and mm. the reason why um I don't particularly like it is i'm, I'm perfectly happy with um, strike rank as stands because i think what it does is separate mm. out two things does not it so initiative so order of yeah um when things happen yeah. Um, is separate yes. to to action, uh, to action, whereas with um, with strike rank, for me, it neatly brings the two together. So it kind of determines what you can do in a in a in a round with mm-hmm. your uh, strike rank, and it kind of says in what order you'll do it. It does, but
2: you still with strike rank does do that. And yeah, if you've got enough strike rank to attack twice, well, no, you can't, always, you can't, you can't no, attack twice. No. Only if you choose not to parry. Yeah. But I mean don't get me wrong I think strike rank's a really good rule uh, you know it is a good rule it's a good way of initiative because it's about dexterity size of your weapon yeah. and it all bundled up into one point one figure which is you know strike rank's a great rule I think when we covered RoomQuest we meant, we said that yeah. it was one of the rules we picked wasn't it yeah, yeah, it was a good rule but as I said I like the action points because they're doing something slightly different from strike rank in that what they're saying that the action points are talking about what you can do in a combat round and as I say I do think sometimes in many games we've played you get that problem of right you've got two opponents or you've got three opponents what can I do bit, bit like Five Eyes Temple in um, yeah. RuneQuest 2 Borderlands where you were kind of mobbed by Newtlings with Tridents so you were fighting four or five Newlings each now these newlings were quite puny and struggled to penetrate your armour but it's that problem of can can you just parry one newtling attack, and the other four you just have to hope they miss or hope your armour mm-hmm. absorbs it. There's an argument for that. Yeah, yeah. Or can you parry, given that parry in Request in 2 isn't dependent on strike rank. Yeah, yeah. It isn't because it's yeah. a reactive thing. Can you parry more than once? Yeah. And sometimes we, your instinct as games masters to say couple of opponents yeah I'll let you parry I'll let you try and parry both because I want to be generous to you but then another time you think nah, I don't know that that sits against the idea of being outnumbered but I yeah. think action points essentially say are quite strict and saying you've got two actions here yeah I think the way I think, or you've got three or you've got four because you're quicker so you can do more than he can
0: yeah I think where I've resolved it is to have um, you can parry uh, once um, at one attack but you've got like if you've got a shield, it's got a passive ability to yeah, absorb yeah. Um, absorb damage in certain locations. So that's, uh, that's the other way we dealt with it. I think the difficulty for me uh, with it is that every time it's come up, every time we've used it, it's caused debate. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And to me, that just slows down
2: uh,
0: the action. Yeah. And does it. So for this one, I'm not going to bring down the gavel.
2: You're
0: not going to bring down the gavel. I'm going to hit you with it. Are you going to parry?
2: I am. I'm going to, I'm going to do, use both action points to parry.
0: Right. <laughs> so we've talked a, a lot about it, and I'm, I'm not going to give you a chance to um, talk about a fumble rule yet, okay. a, a rule that doesn't doesn't okay. work. I don't think we have played enough Mithras to kind of be firm on what mm. things we don't like enough.
2: No, and I don't think I don't think there's much. think there's much that we don't like is there? No. I can't think of much that I don't like about the the mechanics of the game. Like I said I think it does a very good job. I think the only thing you wouldn't like about it is in more general terms that if you don't, if you're not that interested in a simulationist RPG that as I said earlier pushes to the limit of playable simulation then you won't like it. Because you know, we've played RuneQuest 2 with people who were DOD players and didn't like RuneQuest 2 because they felt it was too deadly. And too, and, and I suppose if you feel that about RuneQuest 2, you really are going to feel it about Mithras because Mithras is even more deadly yeah. and even more tricky in terms of the, the minutiae of combat. You know, getting hit in a location and, like you say, bleeding and making an endurance roll. So it, if it has a flaw. It, it's a flaw based on taste I suppose you know, if you don't yeah. like that kind of thing you're not going to like Mithras. but if you do you are before we depart let's just talk a little bit about
0: magic because mm. we feel differently about the magic yeah. don't we mm. so my view on the magic is on my initial reading of it I thought it dealt with the different types of magic, because it, it's a generic system, yeah, yeah, it yeah. presents yeah. different forms of magic, So folk, magic, animism, um, uh, sorcery and mysticism. Yeah. And it presents it. And the rules around it are, are, are relatively uh, similar. So you know, you c- you've got some choices about the intensity of your spell, and the spell's treated almost like a skill. Mm. Spellcasting yeah. ability yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah. treated like a skill, and the mm. skills among uh, amongst that, and I, I, I quite liked it. And I quite like because of the way that I am. I quite like how the thought magic mm. is all that kind of uh, boring stuff in life, like tidying up. Yes, yeah. there is a tidying yeah, up spell. A tidying up spell. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> Why wouldn't there be? Yeah. The first thing you would think of. It.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've got all those kind of mundane mm. stuff that you would have as yeah. a you know person. Who just needed to make life easier yeah. through the manipulation of magic yeah. and then it allows you to do things that are, are more powerful this is where we differ isn't it
2: well yeah because it's not so much it's not so much that the magic system feels half-baked because I don't think it does I mean there's an element of that because there's four different types and they're just done generically so in, in theory you could use one type ignore the yeah. others couldn't you so I think in you know you could say oh I'm gonna have sorcery and that's the only magic available or you could say the fork magic is the yeah. only magic so you can pick and pick and mix and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing um, I, I think what it struggles with is the it's the eternal RuneQuest quest problem or any system problem well the, it's more of a problem for RuneQuest because RuneQuest quest never really come to terms with it, has it? <laughs> that's the balance factor so yeah. The problem with RuneQuest is there isn't really, there is but there sort of isn't really a price to pay so it's that problem of if you make someone in RuneQuest give them access to powerful magic well they can wear armor and carry a sword and do all the things the guy who can have access to that magic can have so that's the that's the nub of it and I'm not sure Mithras really resolved I think it's still a bit of a problem so when I read the sorcery rules there's the sorcery rules and you can you can have more powerful spells which are more like traditional wizard spells aren't they they're not like folk magic they're like yeah. proper, you know transforming things into other things and all that but to make that spell powerful you have to put a lot of power in there power points and a lot of you know to shape it and bump up the magnitude and I can remember looking at it and thinking Oh, well it's alright being able to turn that, you know, NPC bozo into a coffee table. But I'm I'm gonna have to use almost all my power just on that one spell. So it's hardly worth it. It's not I'm well, not really a wizard, am I? I'm a wizard with one trick. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So it it doesn't it never quite feels like you can't be a wizard. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't really be a wizard because there's still that hangover with RuneQuest of if you will let someone be a wizard they've got everything everyone else has got as well <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I don't know that's, that's the way it feels you know
0: well we'll be returning to Mithras we'll be playing Mithras again yeah. in the next few weeks because uh, we're going to use the Luther Arkwright supplement the Luther Arkwright um, mm. setting um, to kind of a quasi uh, science fiction one. there's magic available kind of psionic skills or so yeah. clairvoyance yeah that kind of thing so it uses the mysticism rules for that and um, at Convergence on the 18th of March uh, 2017 we'll be doing the Fire Opal of Set using uh, these rules so Blimey Charlie uh, Judge it. you're going to need your luck points for that because <laughs> if you think having a sword in Mithras
2: is deadly just imagine what it's like having a gun <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, lots of bleed rolls. <laughs> Bleeding hell. It's got a gun.
0: <laughs> OK, you can stop fingering your gavel. Thank you. We're going to uh, draw it to a close for uh, today. Thank you very much, Blithy. Goodbye. Bye.
2: There isn't one!
0: Rick will be back in the next part of the episode to face the Games Master screen to pick at random five items from his collection and look back at the time playing them. We'll also be opening the box on Borderlands with Judge Blythe and reflecting on the campaign. I've been talking bobbins about RuneQuest in the great echo chamber of the podcast diverse. I appeared as a guest on Dissecting Worlds podcast where Kiha and Matt pitted Gary Gygax against Greg Stafford in a head-to-head discussion that inevitably ended up being gamist against narrativist styles of RPGs, with interesting diversions along the way. Hey, if everyone else is reducing the world to oversimplistic dichotomies, then why can't I? I also games mastered an actual play for any nominated podcast, The RPG Academy. I was a visiting fellow as part of the trial series. I took them to Gringles Pawn Shop as a Duck Cumacti Death Squad with fun results. You can catch the podcast as it's been released in three parts by subscribing to them. It will be followed by the recap where Michael, Scott and Caleb will reflect on their experience of playing Quest. As I've said before, I'm not a fan of listening to actual play. For me, the fun comes from playing. It's not a spectator sport, and I always feel like a eunuch in a brothel. But I know many people do enjoy them. The session was broadcast over Twitch and on the RPG Academy uh, YouTube channel. You can uh, go over there if you fancy seeing my wide-eyed, tongue-rolling It was very late and I was fighting a cold. Well, go and watch it there if you want to see it. We're presently planning the next grogzine and grogmeet for this year and revamping Patreon with some new goals. If you want a PDF of the first grogzine, it's available for download at the Patreon site. The podcast will always be free and the Patreon just helps to cover costs. And help us to develop content and support other projects. Thank you very much to new Patreons Vivienne Dunstan, Christian Richards, and Dwayne Woolley for joining at the $1 supporter level. We have some new members who've joined at $5, and I'd like to roll them a gift from a table relevant to the episode. I'm going to roll on my favourite RuneQuest table and award them with a chaotic feature. First up is Sean Hillman. I think he sounds like he comes from snake pipe hollow. So let's give him a roll. Ah, 47. He appears very confusing. Well, appearances can be deceptive. Okay. Hyperlexic. He's upped his pledge to $5 a month. Okay. And 65. He appears dangerous once again. Let's hope that appearances are deceptive in in that case. Um, Jack Evans has placed a very generous ten dollars a month so let's have a see what he gets and he gets 76 and that's an extremely thick skin. Well they say that everyone should have one so enjoy that. So thanks to all of you for your continued support um, sometimes it it can be hard work doing this if you just have a listen to this.
1: There it goes. Go.
0: <laughs> just Blythe rules Welcome to the room of Role Playing Rambling, where I'm joined by my learned friend Judge Blythe. Fingering is <laughs> <laughs> Fingering?
1: What <laughs> Where
2: are that you going then? <laughs> <laughs> Right. I never agreed to that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Judge Blythe,
0: rules. Welcome to the room of role playing rambling, where I'm joined by my learned friend, Judge Blythe.
2: You would give up. Oh, dear me. You've got to come on. Fingering. Stop. Stop saying fingering. Stop saying it. Stop saying it. Don't say fingering what I'm Right.
0: <laughs> Until next time, adios, amigos.